Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation, a Stranger Things podcast. I'm Robin. I'm Jenna. And today we'll be discussing Chapter 3, The Case of the Missing Lifeguard. Coffee selections for today, I am actually drinking a yogi tea, the rooibos chai. So it's chai, but it's herbal. But I am drinking it from my from my rogue mug, if that uh, makes it any more interesting. Robin, I'm drinking chai today too. We didn't even coordinate that. It must just <laughs> be a chai kind of day. Yeah. Mine's, uh, the brand is Off Black. Oh, I don't think I've heard of that. I hadn't either. I got myself a tea subscription service, so I got a couple months of, you know, random brands of teas coming my way, so. Cool. Well, now that we've acquired coffee, let's proceed with contemplation. So we start this episode off with Elle and Max hanging out in Hopper's cabin, and they're listening to music, they're looking at photos of Ralph Macchio and... Max says that she wishes that she could see their stupid faces. And then that's when Elle realizes that she can spy on them using her powers. Yeah, invasion of privacy much. Yeah. I, I feel like for Elle, it's, she may not really realize what that means. And she's just being egged on by Maxine. She's taking her cues from Maxine. And Maxine is she's going to push boundaries because she wants to know. Yeah. I do like that this continues kind of the thread of conflict building towards what we will see culminate later. But I I like that you can see that she is being a little bit casual with what Elle is doing. But when she goes in to spy on them, the boys are back to the same setup as before. Only this time, Mike and Lucas are also eating a ton of junk food. And Mike is saying that he doesn't understand what he did wrong and why is she treating me this way? And women act on emotion and not logic. <laughs> Mike doesn't know what he did wrong when the episode before they were talking about exactly that. And Lucas was saying ex- we, exactly what was wrong. They know exactly what they did wrong. It's I understand if they wanted to go for that vibe of, again, conflict against the, the girls and the boys. That's totally fine. They should have chosen different words they should have chosen different things for them to say they know what they did wrong that's just silly that's just silly Heidi has been identifying through the past two seasons the fact that Mike is such that is this character that's founded in empathy and it's again if they want to stray away from that okay but to have him say the very like women act on emotion and not logic what his sister is Nancy Wheeler. Like, I don't recognize this person at all. And I mean, and it only gets worse from here. With young boys especially, they'll put on a front for each other. You know, that's definitely something young people do in general. But these guys have been through so much crap together. I don't know, maybe this is, maybe you could make the argument that this is one way for them to deal with tr- their trauma, to try to put on this front of, oh, we're going to try to be really normal and complain about girl problems only or whatever. But um, I'm, I'm not really buying. I don't think I would buy that. <laughs> yeah, it's like it just doesn't compute to me. So the boys are interrupted with Will, you know, saying that the board is ready. And Lucas even says, not now. And Will argues, you know, they broke up with you. What else is there to say? Mike and Lucas then devolve into burping and farting. And Will looks almost as disgusted as Eleven before she comes out of the astral plane and drops back into the bedroom laughing hysterically. Just in the in the interest of fairness, I have to say that I can see that Mike and Lucas 
might have some grounds to be a little bit irritated with Will. Like I can, you know, as much as I do side with Will, I can see that they're what's happening between them. I think if you want to be really generous, is it's a lack of communication, which I think does actually make sense for kids their age. They clearly have repeatedly told Will that they're not interested in the game. What they haven't fully communicated is like, we're really not, we're not interested in this at all. Like you need to stop asking us because they keep saying not now, not now. If you think about it from Mike and Lucas's perspective for a moment, Will is actually not being a very supportive or helpful or empathetic friend. Like he, he is just kind of like, I don't care about your stupid girl problems. And I do think it's fair for him to feel that way, but I, I would understand both sides, especially being at that age. Sometimes it can feel like a real chore to care about your friends' love lives, you know, when you're 12 or 14 or whatever. I remember some of my friends like going through boyfriends like really quickly and I just stopped caring. So I, I guess I can I can see both sides of that. Yeah. But as Eleven is lying there laughing, that's when Hopper arrives. So something that we didn't touch on last episode is the fact that so not only did Hopper leave the restaurant drunk, he drove home drunk and took an open container of alcohol with him. Yeah, I, you know, it's so funny in these in these things that take place in the, the 90s and, and 70s. And when somebody drives home drunk, it's almost like like that's actually a trope. I feel like that happens in a lot of those movies and, and shows. And so I actually didn't even give that any thought. You know, they're trying to get us to want him and Joyce to be together. And he never feels worthy of her. This whole scene, like I kept a running mental list of things he did that just made him feel not worthy of her and to not make me want them to get together and like this I like you said I I didn't even really even think of this let's just like add it to the list he does not feel worthy of Joyce and I don't want them to get together as Heidi has said a lot on this podcast like we're probably not meant to worry our pretty little heads about it but there's just there's a lot wrong with that he blusters in. He clearly thinks that Mike is there. So he bursts into the bedroom. But instead, finding Max, he's actually kind of happy about it. His delight at the fact that Mike is not is not there overshadows what could have been a really cool moment with him real, you know, actually being genuinely happy that Elle has someone else there, that she's hanging out with a new friend, which again, I don't know that I would like that to be a new thing, but he's not like actually happy about it. He's very smug, like, yep, she's in there with some with a different person. She's in there with a girl and she's not in there with Mike. Like, I don't know. It uh, yeah, opportunity wasted. That's a very important point though, because does he really have her best interests at heart? The fact that we lose Hopper at the end of this season makes it so important for their grief to be earned. But so the girls decide that they're gonna play a variation on spin the bottle to spy on different people on the board are billy mr wheeler nancy steve dustin and mr clark and so again this is another moment very quickly of of max not respecting the significance of l's powers like and particularly i'm referring to the exchange of l saying is this again you know against the rules and max saying we make our own rules after so many rules from so many people to hear Max say those words, it must be really nice. Right, exactly. And I, that's kind of something I was looking for with Kali last season. And I think that's something that she got from her. But um, I like to see that thread being continued of Elle becoming her own person. You know, I make my own rules. But I think that it speaks to Elle being so young and having so much joy and life to give and she's so happy to be experiencing things like we saw in the mall at the last episode and i'm so happy for her in that and i 
you know, I think I said this last time, man, this show would be good even without the supernatural things. I would have loved to see Elle just kind of grow up and be happy and stuff. Mm -hmm. But she spins the bottle and it lands on Mr. Wheeler. They say no. And so then she spins it again and it lands on Billy. So Max, you know, warns her, air quotes, that if he's doing something gross to get out of there quickly. But uh, what Elle finds first is his car. And then here's the same dialogue from Billy that we heard at the end of the last episode. Because the way that I perceived it was just she was hearing the words, but not necessarily at the same time they were being spoken. She was just experiencing the moment as a kind of nebulous thing. You know, time isn't completely linear, maybe, or something like that. That's kind of how I took it. But also that seems to be kind of the vibe that they're going for, because the stuff with Heather later on is not literal. It's all metaphorical. At least that's my impression. That is true, too, actually. When Billy does stand up, though, he whips around and looks right at Elle. And the image of Eleven flickers in front of him. And she, Elle, watches the image of him dissolve when she comes back out of it. And she's thoroughly shaken. And only then do we get the title sequence. That is one long cold open. But that was such a good moment. Honestly, I love that moment where Billy looks at her. I was so good. That's like back to, ooh, some of the things we actually like about this show. <laughs> it was really good. It is. It really is. Because that's, that's the first moment where it's like the plot really feels like it's really kicking off. And then uh, we come out of the title sequence to the Wheeler's house in the morning, the next morning, I'm guessing. And Will gets desperate to try and convince them to play the game. He wants to get back to the time before any of this happened to him. Something that I loved so much about that first scene in season one is that when you introduce those kids and they're at that table, there is so much integrity and there's so much dignity to the way that they portray D&D. This feels like we lose a lot of that. All of those things that they did in those games contributed to how they handled a lot of the like the literal danger that they faced. If this is him trying to retain what they did before, this is all different. It wasn't like this. This isn't the way that Mike DM'd. He's in the, we have never seen them dress up. We have never seen them use music. And again, I don't think you needed to create the conflict between them by doing this. I don't think this was necessary. Maybe it's not that they're trying to make D&D seem unappealing, but that is the side effect. And that's ultimately how it feels. And you're right, that does that does suck to feel like that's being made fun of. But then again, like most things in this episode in this season, it doesn't feel earned. It doesn't feel like it actually happens naturally. It just It's very sudden. Yeah. Over at the cabin, Hopper manages a hangover uh, and sees Eleven's note on the fridge that she's gone to Max's for a sleepover. Just as Joyce arrives and she launches into her theory while he starts berating her about being stood up and he insinuates that she's got a thing going with Scott. She says that she thinks the lab is back back up to no good and wants to go back there. Yeah, for all that we've said about Hopper, I will say that, you know, Joyce barges into his house at who knows how early it is in the morning and doesn't even try to apologize for standing him up the night before. She just launches right into it. And at no point in this scene does she even pretend to say she's sorry for that. She really doesn't. I honestly thought that she was better than that, too. Even for all her paranoia, she wouldn't just flat out forget that she stood him up last night. She would be like, look, I'm, I'm sorry, but at, like at the very least, I thought we would have heard that out of her. But there was nothing like that. She was just like, 
Yeah, the magnets fell off my fridge, Hopper. What are you not getting about this? Scott Clark said that there could be a thing. What are you not getting about this? And like, honestly, I don't blame him for being frustrated at all about that. No, I don't either. They're both in the wrong here. And Joyce already has a tendency to hyperfixate. Yes, but she clearly registers that Hopper's upset about being stood up. Like she reacts like, oh, when he says that part about like, you stand me up because he says those words directly to her before he mentions going to Scott's and then she still doesn't apologize. So on some level, she does register that that's what happened. And to me, I read that moment of her going like, oh, like eyes closed. Isn't like, oh, you're so annoying. I don't hear, I don't read it that way. I read that moment as like, oh shit, that's right. We did, we had plans, damn it. I screwed up. But then she never cops to it. Exactly. Do I agree with you that I do think he has every right to be upset, but it just kind of feels like everything else. It just it gets blown a little bit out of proportion. Beyond what I think is rational, if they really were just friends, he he reacts to me like he still feels entitled to that having been a date, despite what he actually said. Oh, totally. And at the same time, like her defensiveness over Scott, like when she's like, he's pretty brilliant, actually. There's n- there is no need for that line. That's an unearned line to me. That line is just there to give Hopper even more reason to be more upset with her. So there can be more conflict between the two of them. Yep. As if we really needed that. Like they don't have enough going. When Hopper says, God forbid any of us ever move on. Not fair. It, that's Joyce has nearly lost her child two years in a row. Then she watched Bob get murdered in front of her. Just over a year ago. Oof, yeah, that that's a low below. But she's gone. <laughs> like she she is breaking into his shed and stealing his pliers, and then he takes off after her. And that I like. That whole little scene at the end outside the cabin. I loved all that. That was great. Max and Elle go back to her house because they're gonna see if Billy's there and then they snoop into his room and they check the bathroom where they see the remains of an ice bath, which spooks Elle. And then they find the lifeguard pouch and the blood on the whistle. Nancy and Jonathan, meanwhile, are back in the dark room looking at photos. And Jonathan asks again if she's sure about this, to which Nancy laughs. And she says that, like Joyce, he worries too much. And she assures him that she's she's got this. And she strolls out. However, he still looks nervous. The confidence in this girl. <laughs> it mm-hmm. is something else. I'll give her that. She does. She presents the photos to the newsroom men, and along with the info that she's gathered on the missing chemicals, she says there's got to be more. And Bruce, the big blonde dude, uh, diminishes her story and ridicules her terribly while Tom settles the room down, seemingly at first, to give Nancy credit, but then he joins in on the joke. And he stands, tells her to do what she was hired for, and report anything to them so they can decide whether or not it's a story. And she leaves the newsroom, laughed and catcalled. And she pushes past Jonathan. I don't think that this ever pays off. I think that it's supposed to feel like it pays off when her and Jonathan bash their faces in and stab them and whatnot in the hospital later, but it doesn't. This does not punish them for their dumb sexist comments. It doesn't. It goes way beyond that. And it doesn't vindicate Nancy in any way. So this is just them beating her down for the sake of beating her down. We leave the Hawkins Post to catch up with Erica, who returns to Scoops Ahoy, but Robin doesn't hear her at first because she has headphones on, listening to the Russian recording. When she, when Robin refuses to give her another sample, Erica wants to know where the sailor man is, but apparently he's busy with, quote unquote, spycraft. 
And I, I like that that Robin seems legitimately like into this whole thing. Like she doesn't go like, you know, roll her eyes and, and is like spycraft. Like she's genuinely like, it's an adventure for her too. I like that. Steve and Dustin are camped out in the middle of the mall with binoculars looking for an evil Russian. Yeah, they're really cute. I love them. I adore Dustin's advice here. Quote, now that you're out of high school, don't you think it's time you move on from primitive constructs such as popularity? Instead of dating somebody because you think it's going to make you cooler, why not date someone you actually like being around? Like, this is gold. I love this. And I also have to give Matarazzo a lot of credit. He and Kiri both could have gone bigger with this moment, with all of their scenes together, really, but they don't. Dustin is totally sincere and down to earth here. He's very grounded. Yeah, I love how Dustin like goes to summer camp, gets a girlfriend, and is suddenly this wise old sage that knows all the relationship advice. It's so good. And and you're right, the direction and the acting, the way they play it is perfect, really. I love the rapport between the two of them. Because Heidi called it out in, in season one that Dustin has always kind of had a certain level of emotional maturity, which is why I think him not being around the other kids makes such an impact. Dustin's a bit of a natural peacekeeper. And I just, I sincerely hope that Steve and the Duffers don't forget about this advice in season four. I'd like to see him grow a little bit more beyond just hooking up with hot girls, presuming that there's a love interest for him. Yeah, I definitely hope that with Steve, that his arc gets treated with respect in the next season. I love him. I, and he's come so far already, of course. I love that he's had these steps to his journey. And I just, I want to see more steps. I want to see more of it. Me too. And uh, Steve pointing out that uh, that Robin is still in school also made me wonder about Nancy because she was a year behind Steve too. So there's all this emphasis on Nancy's gender in the news in the newsroom, like over at Hawkins Post, but they haven't ridiculed her for her age at all. It's all been her gender. What if she's a minor? Goodness gracious! Yeah, she might be. She might still be seventeen. Gross. Back at the Wheelers, the boys continue to play D&D, but all the magic from before is gone. Mike and Lucas are clearly just going through the motions, a long way from the 10-hour session back from season one. But the fatigue turns to them making fun of it and laughing um, before the phone rings and the boys jump up, but it's a telemarketer. And this kickstarts more debate about the girls. I love that Lucas even says that. Maybe we should just call them. Like, Lucas would say that. He would think of an actual, like, practical solution. And then Mike, of course, says, we can do that. And, like, yeah, guys, come on. Well, because Lucas is also the one that, like, has said, like, Max has dumped me, like, five times. And I've and then she even says, like, they're going to come crawling back. Like, don't worry. And, and this is Will tries to resume the game, but Mike figures out a way to just end the game immediately. And this is when Will finally concedes. He throws down his staff, he rips the costume off, and packs up to go. And he even says the words, you win, which I thought was interesting. I hadn't noticed that before. And Mike says, I was just messing around. And for a brief moment, the Mike and Lucas that we've, that we've known show up. Like, now that, that they see that Will is upset, it's like it finally clicks for them. You know, they, they say, well, we no, we, we want to keep playing. Like, it... And it's clearly not true. Uh, and Will shouts just to forget it, and then he leaves. And frankly, I I don't blame him. It was just so weird for me to suddenly see Mike and Lucas care about, like, what, they didn't see that them acting like complete absent assholes wasn't going to upset Will at all? They didn't foresee that he would get upset and then leave? 
that was just, and now they're so adamant about having him come back to finish the game. Like that just made no sense to me. What it seemed like they were trying to do with that was it's like that kind of like click away from like what he's been doing of like begging them and just doing the thing when he goes like, you know what? I'm done. I think that's what breaks through. That's what I think they're going for. Like my quite like if I had been in Will's shoes and in this this early part of this confrontation in the garage, my response would be like, you don't want me to stay, dude. Why are you, why did you follow me out here? You clearly have wanted me to go away for the past several days. So I'm finally giving you what you want. Why are you following me? It was kind of funny to me that Mike and Lucas didn't follow him out. Like if not one, why not both? Like I understand they obviously wanted to have a moment between Mike and Will. Sure. But it just kind of felt, wouldn't you feel awkward if you were Lucas, like hanging out in your friend's basement and both of your other friends had stormed out and what are you doing? Just like, well, I guess I'm going to hang out down here while they have a moment. (laughs) Yeah. That just felt a little funny, but I do understand why they would want to follow him out if they're suddenly feeling so like, oh shit, we screwed up. We got to go. We got to try to make this right, even though it's it's probably not going to work. That's true. And they, they sure do. Yeah, they, they have a moment, all right. Hmm. It's a cool campaign. We're just not in the mood to play. But Will argues that that's the problem. They're never in the mood anymore. And they don't even know or care where Dustin is. And I, and I kind of like the idea that this has been coming on for a long time, that this isn't just contained to this one sequence of events that we're witnessing here. Because this is. This is a very real and very hard part of life, right? Yeah, we, we always move on and transition from things constantly throughout life. So I, I think that this could be highly relatable for anybody, sure. Yeah. And I think that that, that much insofar as it goes works. It's it's to me what doesn't work is what follows, what comes next. Because Will says that they're ruining the party and for what? So you can swap spit with some stupid girl. And Mike retaliates by saying, Elle's not stupid. It's not our fault you don't like girls. Just cards on the table. I I hate this exchange. I hate it. so I know a lot of people are taking that line and kind of reading what they want to into it and I think that that's fair I guess how I take that line though personally is he's he's calling Will a, a child you haven't grown up like the rest of us you're still a kid you know I'm sorry you haven't grown up but we have that's how I felt him saying that line Mike is somewhat provoked because he gets defensive at hearing Elle insulted. Like that, I think, actually tracks. But I don't I don't think him shaming Will in that way does. Like I I just I don't buy it. I don't see that as being Mike's next move. It, and it's certainly not when when the following apology is, I'm sorry, but you know I'm right. And considering last season how Mike was feeling about Max joining the party, I was just saying they're like, wow, you know, it's he, he just, he can't even hear himself talking. Like, it's unfortunate. Will was the one that Mike complained to the most about Maxine. So if I was Will, I'd be like, uh, do you remember when this was happening? And you claimed <laughs> that that was ruining the party? Like, that was not even that long ago, dude. Not unlike the breakup with Elle, this completely ignores, like you were just saying, like all of their history. You know, after how close they were last season, like Mike got a front row seat to the horrors that Will went through. While I concede that I, I do think that Mike would have reacted, like his response to Hopper, I don't think that Mike's frustration and defensiveness would have manifested in that way. I don't think those are the words that would come out of him. He's just too caring a person at his core. I almost wonder if it should have been, she saved your life, dude. Yeah. Like, why does he go here? He's calling him a child, but I think... 
this scene just reeks to me of this is them trying to establish that Will is queer. And I don't, uh, maybe that wasn't what they were trying to do, but it feels like it's a bungled attempt at that because it's too vague. Well, that's the whole point. It's like they don't have to do the actual work of writing in a queer character. They can put in this lazy dialogue and you can infer whatever you want, Mm -hmm. which is almost, you know, which I think is worse. So I identify as ace, as asexual. And so because I didn't date for most of my life, I've been on the receiving end of statements like that. To have someone ask you, or say that something is wrong with you. And my issue with what happens here is that even though Mike does apologize and and they do they do get credit for that to an extent, but to me the show never establishes him saying there's nothing wrong with you. It doesn't matter if Will is is gay, is bi or pan, if he's ace, if he's just simply not ready for that yet like if he's as much as i hate the expression a late bloomer like he's just a little behind them and he's just like i just need to figure out my own like grounding for a minute before i even think about being in love or dating anybody he's just like i just needed my friends like whatever it falls under it still has this cadence of there's something wrong with you. And especially if this is them trying to establish Will as, as, as a queer character, to have it come from Mike, I just Will's best friend. The one who's supposed to be so empathetic, regardless of how they meant it, or you know what I've been thinking is that they actually hadn't decided how they meant it. Maybe they wanted to leave space for them to work it out in the next season or later or whenever we get to it. So that's why they never really follow up with that and have Mike properly apologize and say something like, there's nothing wrong with you. Even with my rating of this, which is kind of very close to the whole late bloomer thing, even with that, re- like they knew what they were doing when they wrote this line. Mm-hmm. They knew that it would be read all these different ways. You cannot tell me that everyone would have read the line the way I did. That's I, I and even though I read it that way, I of obviously I know that people are going to take it differently and I generally love when things are open to interpretation in in shows and whatever, but like not this. Mm-hmm. This was a little too it was just handled so gracelessly. Yeah. It's this was lazy writing. I really don't like being harsh in my criticism of stuff like that, especially someone who's not a writer. But that line, that was that was lazy for them to leave that in there. Yeah. And especially like if this is intended to be Mike saying, I'm aware of the fact that that you are not straight in some capacity, to reveal the fact that he knows in this context. That's just so shitty. Like I don't know how you come back from this. I don't know how Will forgives him if that's if that's the case. <laughs> And I'm actually interested in seeing how Mike and Will remain friends in season four. I actually kind of am interested to see if they aren't friends, if they don't get along, if there's a lot of tension there or or friction because Will just can't forgive him. And I think that that would be a really interesting message because sometimes your friends are going to turn out to be dicks and you have got to learn how to let them go. I think that would be really interesting to see that in this show. Yeah. Because again, like to me, Mike should be aware that he just crossed a line because that's what happens here. He crosses a line. And then he doubles down on it. Yes. Regardless of how well this moment tracks for Mike's character, which again, I don't, I don't think either of us believe that it does. But after all that Will has been through, 
after everything we've watched him suffer, couldn't he have been spared this? To be guilted and shamed and othered by his best friend? And in the same spot he and Mike had their last interaction before Will disappeared in season one? I know you can't treat your characters too nicely. I just don't know why we needed to do this to Will. In a show like this, too. I always think about WandaVision when they're watching... um... Malcolm in the middle, I think it was. And Vision goes, is he hurt? And Wanda's like, no. How do you know? Well, it's not that kind of show. Like going into Stranger Things in season one, you got the, the sense that it was a horror show, you know, not super gruesome, grisly horror. And you got that feeling because the main protagonists were young children, but there were still going to be those elements of horror. And I guess I have to admit that that would be a fine line to walk and maybe it would be tricky. But I guess that's it's still our prerogative as fans to say what landed and what didn't land for us. That's a really good way to put that. Our prerogative as fans. I like that. Something I'm also reminded of that Heidi said back in, in season one was how Steve slut-shaming Nancy in front of the entire town, that the ramifications of that were not fully thought through. Like they, they didn't really consider how traumatizing that would actually be for her. I think the same thing is in play here. I don't think that they are aware of how deeply traumatizing this would actually be for Will in this moment to come from this person. And I think another way that they cheat this is that it's like Will says, yeah, I guess I did think that like, you know, we, we would just play D&D, you know, how stupid of me. Um, and he rides away. What happens after this when Mike goes back down into that basement and he tells Lucas what just happened? I want to see Mike process what he just said. What does he admit to? Depending on what happens in that exchange, that could have really affected how all of this lands. Will still, you know, if nothing else changed after it, we don't necessarily get to see Will experience anything different, but it would still affect us to know what that exchange was like between Mike and Lucas. And him saying, I fucked up, I got to go make this right. That would have gone a long way. What if Lucas was in the garage with them? We would have gotten to see everything through Lucas's, through the lens of Lucas. And and what would he have then said to Mike? Like, dude, what the fuck? Yeah. This might be one of my least favorite moments in the whole show. This was the point where I remember being like, I don't know if I want to keep going. Like, it's getting better, but that was messed up. I don't know if, if I'm still on board. It does, to me, kind of start to climb out of this, this valley after this, but this was a really low point. Yep. Uh, we leave that horrible moment to go to the pool where everyone is leaving because of the rain, and Max and Elle return the lifeguard pouch to the guy at the front desk who tells them that it's it's Heather's, but she didn't show up today. And then Elsie's Heather's photo and she takes it so that they can clearly try to find her. And this all reminded me a lot of the, like kind of as a throwback to the bathtub, uh, chapter seven, the bathtub, when Max is turning on all the showers and Elle puts on the, the mask with all the tape over it. It felt like when they were in the gym, they created the sensory deprivation tank for her. Yeah. It, I think it also could speak to maybe Elle's getting better at her powers, that she doesn't need to be like completely submerged and everything. And I mean, she's been doing that for a while now, but... Yeah, I mean, even in the beginning, I kind of wondered a little bit about that. Like, I didn't think she actually even needed all of this anymore because... She powered up when she met Kali. Maybe that was just because she was, like, already on overdrive when she was with Kali. But because there's that bit in the... When she's in their hideout and she doesn't have the ba- the blindfold on. She doesn't have any noise. It's just her in that room holding her, her shirt. And that's when... So she's... I Yeah, it's a little bit, like... But everything else besides that has been this. So it, I didn't think too much of it. But This scene does have one of my pet peeves in it, which is when um, 
NPCs, I'll call them, are just unnecessarily rude or confrontational. <laughs> like, was that really? I mean, my goodness, like how many people have you met in your life in, in service or anywhere that were really that rude? <laughs> it's just so funny whenever that happens in a show. Yeah, so rude. Elle finds Heather's mailbox. I loved the ghosting in of the door, actually. Like, I thought that was cool because we haven't really seen that before. It's always been things like dissolving away. But I liked that taking shape. That was neat. And then she finds the bathtub filled with ice and Heather basically drowning inside it. Uh, well, Heather then is dragged be you know, beneath the surface and Elle tries to reach for her, but it's no use. And Elle reemerges from from her, her, her trance gasping. And something is clearly super duper wrong. Like Max even looks a little shaken by how shaken up Elle is. And like all of that plays beautifully. Like I, I love like everything about that whole sequence. That's really, really well done. Two things. One is I really do love the pan down from Elle's face to the photograph of Heather. It's such a simple thing, but the photograph ends up being upside down from the camera's perspective. And that like sometimes the simple things work the best. <laughs> so I liked that. Especially in this season where everything is so overdone. Like, yeah. This episode starts really like over the top, but we have moments like this that are done very simply and it's it works really well. Sometimes that's all you need. It's like, oh, great. She's upside down. I get it. <laughs> yeah. The other thing for me, though, was this is where I started to feel a little bit like, do you remember the first or second time we ever saw Elle go to this pitch black area and how cool that felt and mysterious and... Now here we are, it, it just doesn't have the same reverence. It's getting overused. It's a little bit OP. It again comes, I think, down to writing. They're writing themselves into a corner, kind of, sort of. And they, they're not keeping it fresh. I'm not sure how you would, again, not being a writer, but just as somebody viewing this, it's starting to be like, all right, we get it. She's going to do the thing where she goes into the thing. Okay, we know, we know, right? What, what happens, I guess? It doesn't feel cool and mysterious anymore. Yeah, I think that's kind of why I liked the touch with the door, because that felt a little yeah. bit new. And honestly, maybe that's why they kind of went this season for a little bit more of like the metaphor. But I, I see what you mean. Like, and I think that might be why they also like brought back like she has to do like the noise and the blindfold because they're like, if we make it that she can just pop into the, up, you know, the astral plane whenever she wants to, it's not the upside down, it's the astral plane that she just pops in and out whenever she wants to. Like that takes a lot of the gravitas of it away. I also have to wonder, like, hearing you say that, that's the first time that it's occurred to me that that might be precisely why they take away her powers at the end of the season. Oh, I'm actually really interested to see where they go with that, but in part because she could try to divine for Hopper and find him, and they needed to take that away, but I don't know. I've been mad about that. I don't like that they took her power away entirely, but I'm also, like, hoping that, especially if we have two more seasons left of Stranger Things, I don't think that they're going to leave her powerless forever. Also... <laughs> So we got away from that, though, to Hopper and Joyce arriving at the lab, and somehow they get into the lab in this rainstorm, and they are bone dry. They don't have a <laughs> drop of water on them, and they don't have umbrellas. They don't have raincoats. Good for them. No, Winona Ryder and David Harbour were like, we are not. I am done getting wet. No, 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 no. I don't feel like it today. <laughs> Well, I do, though, kind of have to wonder if this scene was, this whole sequence was shot at a different mm, time. And, and I, I have a number of reasons for thinking that. This only, like, feels like the first sign to me. Because they walk into the front, the front of the lab. Joy starts remembering Bob, which we are 
made to relive along with her, which I did not appreciate. Yeah, like I, I I get them showing maybe a little bit of that, but like, my goodness, they really went for it. They were like, no, we hired Sean Astin and we used all these special effects. We're going <laughs> to show the scene again. You're going to watch it again. And yeah, no, I'm like you. I did not appreciate all of that all over again. And then to have Hopper be like, are you okay? Like, what of, you course she's not, like of course <laughs> she's not okay. Yeah, I mean, at first I even kind of liked that he's like checking in, but then it's like... That actually plays to something you and Heidi were talking about, about how he knew exactly what to say to Jonathan at, at some point in season one. There were mm-hmm. like a couple of different ways he could have put something. Like he phrased it just right. And here it's like, no, he did the opposite. He he could have totally said, hey, I'm here if you need anything or something like that. You know, he didn't have to say, are you okay? When like, do you really, what do you think? That would have been a great place actually. And this is just me off the cuff. Like that might've been a good place to have him say call back to what he just said like in the cabin when he was like you don't want to go back there Joyce like come on like he could have like he could have said that but said like are you sure are you sure you want to do this yeah like and said that with a lot of empathy and like or something to that effect because then he says like well I don't I can just go in if you don't want to and she's like no I'm here I'm fine I told you I'm fine like again some of that just feels a little clunky but it could have it could have been better it's fine but it could have been better that sound what you just said. That sounds like season one Hopper. I I miss season one Hopper so bad. Me too. Oh my goodness. And before we can get the rest of that bit, we return to Steve and Dustin, and we get that stupid jazzercise thing. Like again, like I love Steve and Dustin. I love the Scoops Ahoy, but this is a mo- this is probably the scene I'd be like omit this shit and put in that scene between Mike and Lucas. Like this is what could get cut. There's no reason we need this here. Exactly. We've already seen that they're out in the thing. And again, they opted for comedy over something serious. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it wasn't even that I totally hated this bit. Like, it was fine. It it was fine. I got a little chuckle out of it here and there. But yeah, at the expense of the other scenes that have the real heart and soul of the episode and the story in them. Like, no. I mean, and, yeah, and I guess this is partly because we need Steve and Dustin out of the ice cream parlor so that Robin can figure out the code. But again, like, we already know they're not there. We don't need to establish what they're what they're doing. Not in such length of time, especially. But she does. She figures the code out. I love this bit. This is great. She's my hero. Yeah, she's she's pretty rad. We also swing back to the Hawkins post where we get the gag with the rubber rat in the cabinet. And as Nancy's making coffee, and instead of scaring or shaming her, it only spurs her on to get proof. And Jonathan continues to make good points. She's like, well, you don't think it's worth it or something? And he says, I don't think it's worth getting fired over. And she's like, they're not going to fire us. Yes. Again, I don't, it's like, it's frustrating, but in the way I think it's supposed to be. Like, that works for me. Yes. And I actually like the way Nancy gets an idea instead of getting put off by the prank. You know, that that is Nancy at her best. And I, lo- I love that we get that from her. And he says, you know, it's just some stupid story, which is it obviously is not that to Nancy. So this is him not hearing her. And then mm-hmm. she says no one's going to fire us, which even if they didn't fire them later, she's absolutely wrong that they wouldn't necessarily fire them. So yeah, both of them are just wrong and not listening. And I really love, I actually love it in this particular scene and and with them later too. I think it works so well. I love it. It did make me wonder though, with Jonathan so adamant that they not lose their jobs, but they're both interns, right? Like, do they have paid internships at newspapers in the 80s? I was like, it is summer, but I think Jonathan is probably hoping to get a permanent job there. 
especially because he seems to be the only photographer there. Right. Like they have plenty of writers clearly, but he's the only the ever one in the dark room. And again, like, you know, we see in that first season that he's like taking shifts at whatever job he was working then because they were they were struggling. And he, you know, he does contribute to the household financials in a way that Nancy just doesn't have to. So it it's really character building and it's it's plot being done in a very character driven way. And I and because again, Nancy's intuition is right. There is something going on. So I love that they're both wrong and they're both right. Like they both have good like I love that. That's just it's so beautifully done. Yeah. I do think it's kind of funny that we're hearing Nancy say the, these things through, you know, the dramatic irony of us knowing that there is, in fact, something very deeply wrong going on, a couple of things deeply wrong going on. But it's hard for us to remember as the audience that Jonathan doesn't know that. And Nancy is really going with almost nothing here. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. there's definitely some really weird stuff happening, but like she really is working with almost nothing And I can totally see him and the editors thinking that she really is making a mountain out of a molehill. And I think that it was, it might've been nice to have a step back and have them say like, I'm I'm trying to think how to phrase this because they do tell her, a few different people do tell her like, why is this a big deal? Mm -hmm. But they don't say it in a way that makes me as a viewer forget all the crazy stuff that I know is happening. I actually wonder if like part of, why Jonathan goes along with it is because of precisely what happened with Joyce in season one, because he was like, this is ridiculous. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're talking to the wall. And and he's probably grown up with Joyce being ridiculed publicly by a lot of people, mm. including Lonnie. So it could very well be that he's a little bit like he doesn't want to see Nancy get humiliated because he's had to kind of grow up with that. And then also to have then Joyce was right in season one. Um, and then also that they went on that adventure in season two. So he's like, Nancy does have good instincts. She knows when she has a pretty good sense of like when something is really going on. So, you know, his instincts of like, but use caution are like, still valid (laughs) yeah definitely yeah Yeah. because we as the audience knew that the demogorgon was a thing in season one when no one else did so apart from joyce (laughs) or will certainly and yet they they never throw a spotlight on that you know same same thing with joyce in this season too though the way that she's like my magnets fell off my fridge and mr cogger's like apophenia and like honestly he's right Mm -hmm. that in in no other world would you ever give anybody like, yeah, Joyce, there's definitely something really fishy going on because some magnets fill up your fridge. Totally. Uh Uh-huh. Buying that. The stranger things that are happening, we really had to dig for in season one. And the way everything happened and came to us felt really organic. It felt great to get those revelations one by one. And in this season, it doesn't quite feel as earned. It doesn't quite feel as organic. Yeah. Yeah. But off they go. We go back to the lab and Hopper and Joyce get down to the room where the gate has been filled in and Hopper basically begins this monologue, you know, when he says, you know, I'm keeping a close eye on things, right? Well, we don't like, we haven't seen him do much work at all so far, except arrest those people after talking to Mayor Klein for about five minutes. Uh, And then when he says all this stuff about wanting Hawkins to still become home, to still be home for Joyce, it suddenly feels like, Hopper shows up like this suddenly feels like the previous season version of Hopper. And it it makes me feel like this 
was shot at a different time. This was shot later or it was shot first and then they had to take a long break. Everything about this interaction is just totally different. The tone is different. The performance, after how over the top everything's been, suddenly he is back to being more controlled, more calm. It's like, where have you been? It's better, but it feels jarring. And there's a one shot where she's sitting on something and he sits on the ground kind of beneath her, almost like he's humbling himself before her, almost like, here I am for your judgment. That's what that shot felt like to me. And it's like, where has, why are we only now getting to this? And yeah, uh, was this the first that we hear of her putting the house on the market? I mean, unless you count like this line being in the trailer, couple of the trailers that they released for season three. No, this is the first time that we find out. And I don't know. I I don't know how I feel even now about that this suddenly is his motivating factor for why he's been so insistent on trying to get her to go out with him. Like it doesn't, that does, they don't feel connected to me. Those, I mean, like it's a great idea. I love the idea and I love the way that he performs this. Like I really truly do, but it highlights how over the top the rest of it's been because suddenly things this feels so grounded. And what a setting for something so grounded to take place in. The lab, the crazy lab where all these other stranger things happened. And this is where they're having their grounded moment. I do like that juxtaposition though. Me too. And it's this place that's been so dangerous and it's just nothing's there. Like, yeah, that's all great. I love all of that. And he wants her to feel safe. He wants her to feel like she can be home here. And that's sweet. Even in the same moment, acknowledging that he understands why she would want to leave. Validating her feelings. I mean, he also says like, but you have things I didn't have, which he manages to perform it in a way that doesn't feel like he's, say, he's being invalidating. It still manages. And I, I, I attribute a lot of that to, again, to both Harbor and to Levy in the direction. Oh, also, hi, Hopper, this is a heart to heart. <laughs> and yeah, and I just wish that at the end that she had, you know, there's no reason not to include an apology right here. This is the moment to give her that. Like, if you're going to insist on keeping that scene earlier the way that it is, even if like, she starts to say it, and then she's cut off by the noise that interrupts this, because that would like be like, we're right about to have this moment of true connection and then they get interrupted, you know, to show us that she she does intend to apologize. But instead, we get her making the joke about Scott Clark. We went for humor again. Yeah, but she is interrupted when that noise, inter- you know, goes off off camera. And how did the, the shot of the gun in silhouette strike you? Um, it struck me. It felt like very out of place for this particular scene, for this episode, for this show. Yeah. Like, it, it just wasn't in the style of anything else that we have seen or that, I, you know, we've seen after this and the rest of the season. Um, I did think it looked cool. It just felt out of place. And I'm not sure what it did besides looking kind of cool. <laughs> to me, this felt like a shot that you and I would have seen at like our college senior showcase. Yeah, totally. And it would have been really good for our particular standards. Like that would have been great. Or, you know, I was thinking that it felt like it might've worked in an older movie too. You know, something in the maybe a little more like forties to sixties era. That was more the style back then. They had harsh silhouettes and and harsh shadows a lot of the time. That's just the way things looked. And that's that was the style. Uh, didn't work here. Not for me. 
And it could be an homage. I guess let's throw that out there. It could be an homage to something that makes sense, uh, but we we don't know. And maybe the reason it feels like it would belong in a student film to you and I is because we did work a lot with film in college, actual film and old film cameras. Remember the scoopic and the, the Ooh, airing, yeah. like things that nobody ever uses anymore. Right. <laughs> so that's why a shot like that would have fit in our student films. Like that's literally the style we shot a bunch of stuff in. Not trying to say student films in a derogatory term, in a derogatory right. way. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That's the point, though, where we swing back to Mike and Lucas arriving at the buyers and banging on the door. Very surprising to me on this on this rewatch. I had completely I think it's because that other scene had bothered me so much and I was so upset by it that I have I had blocked this that that they actually not only do they does is Mike saying these words and Lucas is saying these words but like they go out in the rain and they show up at his house and they say I'm sorry like let's talk I want to talk about this again this is setting up for something we never see followed through on <laughs> not the way I wish it had but just too bad this never actually gets said directly to Will I, I wish we'd gotten more, but I like that this is here. I do think this is some some small effort on the part of both the characters and and the the writing team to like actually show some kind of like no, they're still actually decent people. They're not just gonna be like fuck off, Will. <laughs> it's not gonna be a what did I do wrong like from the beginning of this episode. We cut to Will in Castle Byers, we, and he's remembering season one. I get him being in Castle Byers and looking at old memories, but when he's st- like tearing up the photo, like I get that. But him destroying Castle Byers, it's the wrong metaphor. It's the wrong symbol. Castle Byers was something that he created with Jonathan. Jonathan and he, talks about that in season two and says, we built it after dad didn't show up. So it's like, why is he destroying it? It's supposed to serve as a symbol for the end of childhood, the loss of innocence. Like Again, it's a great idea, but that's the wrong symbol for that. What would the right symbol be? Where do you think they could have gone with that instead? Just like the photographs and the D&D books, maybe? The D&D books, destroying his Halloween costume or his artwork, like any of the Will the Wise like artwork stuff. Or like the art supplies. That too. I mean, all any of their like science trophy stuff, like they could have found him around the side of the house, like throwing all that shit away or like burning it or something. Mm. Nancy and Jonathan go to Mrs. Driscoll's house, but she doesn't answer. So they go in and they find her in the basement. Not at all. Okay. Eating fertilizer. Gross. Gross. Scary. Sad. Yeah. I found myself like really upset by that. Yeah, because she just seems like such a sweet old lady. And it's like, oh, and this is one of the victims. This is what, and honestly, that's a big part of why I don't like horror in general. I have a hard time disassociating. Me too. I 100%, I am not a horror person. I do not watch horror things. I don't play horror games. Like, I don't do horror either. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And at Starcourt, the Scoops Troop spy on the loading dock, (laughs) getting soaked. Dustin and Steve fight over the binoculars, which makes a noise, and so they all duck. That's when we have the moment between Steve and Robin. They realize that they're holding hands and embarrassed they let go. This is deliberately misleading because this is exactly the same thing we saw between Max and Lucas last season. It does mess with our minds about what where their relationship is going. And like I think that sure if they had kept the original direction they were gonna go and have them be a couple, yeah, it would have been great. Would have worked. But like I didn't appreciate them keeping it in knowing that that wasn't how it was gonna go. I think it's fine for Steve to maybe look at Robin as a potential prospect later and you know, oh, maybe I could 
try to get with Robin. She is really cool. That because she he's realizing that she's cool. And I like that. But this just felt like she would return those feelings. And she obviously wouldn't, as we know now. Maybe Steve notices that he's grabbed her hand. She's still like looking up, like listening. And then she goes, like looks down and goes, get off of me. It could have been like, oh, he is starting to show interest in her, but it's not reciprocated. In that way, yeah. In a way that necessarily wouldn't have been like, because she's a lesbian. Like it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have necessarily read that way <laughs> yet, you know, but it would on hi- in hindsight, it would have, sh- you would have seen it. So what's the opposite of queer baiting? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Back at the lab, though, we finish up with our our Hopper and Joy storyline where Hopper gets absolutely thrashed by Gregory. Like, it's bad. Oh, my God. Those kidney shots had me like, holy crap. I got hit in the kidneys really hard a couple times back when I was doing LARPing. Oh, my God. That doesn't feel good. And that was with like a foam sword. So that wasn't even somebody's fist. Yeah. I cannot imagine what that would feel like. Oh, no. This is pretty much the first instance of this season really not taking physical... Like, this is... I mean, Heidi and I touched on it a little bit in the season finale of of season two, where I was saying that, like, you know, Billy nearly kills Steve. Like, Steve takes, like, over 10 hits to the face, and he, and he somehow is able to then just keep going. And Billy doesn't break his hands or anything. Yeah. But I kind of feel like that's the rules that we start playing with from here on. But season three just, again, like increases that a million times because, yeah, like Hopper doesn't go to the hospital after this. Jonathan is going to get thrown around in the hospital later. Oh, my God. Yes. He's totally fine. And in a way, though, this establishes that this is the logic. We're treating this very lightly. That's true, because later Max and Mike get thrown against the wall by Billy and they get knocked out cold and they do wake up shortly afterwards completely fine. So I think that may be why they did that, because they wanted to to actually hurt the kids physically. And so maybe they had to be like, all right, we have to establish the logic, like you said. But yeah, he gets, Hopper gets pretty thrashed here. And Joyce finds him and is, like, horrified, understandably so. And she catches sight of the motorcycle driving away. Bullshit, she can read that license plate. I could barely read it while watching it on my laptop. There is no way. There is no way. Also, I have a couple other questions. Like, why the hell was this guy following them in the first place? Why did he choose to beat Hopper up here? Why? What purpose did that serve for them? Like Hopper and Joyce don't wouldn't know who this guy is, so it doesn't serve as a warning to, for anything. Hopper ends up back in his cabin. Joyce has apparently taken him back there. There's no way in hell she would have been able to lift or drag him. Uh, she probably wouldn't have dragged him through the wet asphalt and the broken glass. That wouldn't have been great, but there's absolutely no way she would have been able to move that body. I'm calling that now. But we're just supposed to let it go. Yeah, that's a really good point. I had not actually thought of that. And then we move into our final movement of the episode, which is Ellen Max bike over to Heather's house. And they they basically break it. They actually do kind of break in because Elle unlocks the door. Which surprisingly doesn't upset anyone. Like, Like, the fact that they just wander into this house, like, really doesn't seem to upset the Holloways? That's like right. really strange to me. It's so funny the way that Tom is just like, hello, strange children. Like, <laughs> what are you doing in my house? Yeah. Of course, I mean, and we see the, the family portrait before we see them 
and that's in the dining room. Billy is having a jovial, you know, dinner with them, and he introduces Maxine to them, ignoring Elle though for some reason until she speaks. I think it's more like he didn't know what to do with her, and he didn't know her name, mm-hmm. so. I don't know. He wasn't going to try to draw attention to her because he didn't know her. I don't know. And calling it like it is, Montgomery's performance here is incredible. Oh, it's so good. He, Yeah, absolutely. He makes this sequence work. He just has that amazing cold but warm demeanor at the same time. It's crazy. Like, how do you do that? <laughs> how do you do that? Especially because it's like, it's so false, But it's false in a way that it's supposed to be. Like, it's exaggerated just enough to be weird, to make it clear that it isn't actually fully him, you know, like not not totally, but not in a way that's like too overdone. Like he could have played it bigger, but he managed to like have this restraint that's just absolutely phenomenal. And compare that to um, the girl who plays Heather. Mm-hmm. who also does a really good job in the scene. She took a more robotic approach to being possessed. And she really just kind of looks like, you know, she's she's literally being mind controlled by something that's making her, you know, smile with that blank smile, that kind of thing, which works. But with Billy, my, like he, it's, there's levels of things happening in his performance. It's incredible. It really is. And when Heather comes out of the kitchen with the cookies, that's when Billy asks about Elle and what her name is. And like, yeah, that standoff between them is great. Oh, yeah. There's like not much here, but it's they do so much with so little. It's great. Yes, yes. The tension between them. You can feel it. But everything seems to be fine. So I love the way, though, that Max is like able to quickly come up with a... An excuse. Your man, the manager said you guys didn't show up to work. To work, so he was worried. So we came to we came to check, and yeah, like I love when Max does. Like those are my some of my favorite moments for Max when she's able to do that. And I love seeing her be resourceful and quick thinking too, because that gives her a role in the party as well. It adds her to the uh, the group dynamic of the kids ensemble when all of them are together. She's one of the quick thinking ones. Mm-hmm. Lucas is a practical one. Dustin is the peacemaker. We, we've been over all this, but I love, yeah, I love that they give her those character attributes to, to show that she really does have a place in this party. Yeah. The girls leave though. And Billy watches them go creepily remembering Elle closing the gate. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised, like, and this isn't like a complaint necessarily. It's just, I find them like, huh, that's interesting that he just lets them go. And I guess part of it is because they've got to do this other thing, but he's like, put a pin in that. I want to come back to that. <laughs> I wonder if it's because he's watching them go and then realizing in that moment who Elle is. Probably. He didn't quite put it together and by he, I mean the mind flayer, mm-hmm. didn't quite put it together fast enough to just take her right there in the dining room. Yeah. And so he's watching them go and thinking like, oh, it's you. Yeah. It's the, and and I guess in that moment, she becomes his objective, right? Mm-hmm. But then what was he doing before, before this to build? To build what? That's my still like remaining question in general. What do you want? I mean, Dustin says in the in season two, he says he wants power. He wants to take over. He wants to like just have like everything. Like, but that's that's the D and D definition. Like, that's just a metaphor that helps them figure out how to you know right. make sense of it. What does it actually want? We don't know. 
I guess it didn't matter before. It didn't matter in season one or two what anything from the Upside Down wanted. That didn't matter. It was just bad. And that worked. It was fine. And now, well, we're getting to the point where the Mind Flayer is a real character and not just an entity. And now we need to know its motives. Now it matters. And we're not getting it. So that's kind of why I'm hoping that all this like lore stuff that we're seeing in, in season four is going to get into that a little more. It, it could have just been the Russians. And then maybe we would have actually learned what they were doing here. And maybe they would have had connections to the people that worked at Hawkins Lab. And there could have been some intrigue there. If this is the moment where the Mind Flayer decides that it wants to kill Elle, not use and assimilate her for her powers, but kill, what was it doing before? Right. I remember watching this sequence the first time that this whole ending was just super chilling and it still contains a lot of that suspense and dread. Yeah. It just, it absolutely works. It doesn't have quite the same punch on rewatch value, but it's pretty close. It's very good. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I really love the lighting on, on Montgomery in that close up. Yeah. And they had to do that to make his uh, pupils dilate a little bit, I think. I know they did a lot of stuff with effects, but you can see that he really was in low light and his eyes were probably naturally dilated and it looks good. Mm-hmm. And that works. And I also love that we are actually using Billy as the lens for the mind flare. That's a really interesting, it, it is an interesting use for him. I know we've shot a lot on how Billy was used in this season, but it's Billy is a sinister character mm-hmm. in and of himself. And it is very cool, the conflict of how, in what way is he sinister now that he's possessed by the Mind Flayer. I, I kind of do like that in this moment when we see him looking at the kids. Because you know that Billy would never look at the girls like that. Mm-mm. He's a creep and he's an ass, but he's not that kind of ass right. or a creep. Yeah. So it's it's very cool. It's a very cool moment. And like you said, it's very chilling. I love it. And I love, I think that because it's Billy, that adds to how chilling it is because it's so wrong. Yes. Yeah. Actually, that's that's really well put. I like that a lot. Considering they chose to go this route, I actually don't mind how, what they do with Billy, given that this is what they decided to do. I just kind of think it's a bit of a bummer that we lose Billy as the human antagonist that he started as. Right, right, right. But everything Montgomery does from this point on with this character and with what he's going through and what happens to him is pretty spectacular. Oh, like yeah. some of the some of the writing in terms of his history gets a little clunky towards the end, but. I mean, again, like Montgomery's performance is just absolutely stellar throughout the rest of the season. In that close-up, I like the way that it pairs to the cut back to Will in the woods. Lest you have any lingering doubts, when, you know, he gets him, he picks himself up right before Lucas and Mike come running up, and then he tells them he's back. The pacing of that was beautiful. That was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Cause like I was still, I was still kind of the first time through, like I was still sitting there like arms crossed, like you got a lot of work to do to get me to want to keep going. And then that, that kind of did it. That was, that was one of the things that got me to, to like kind of go, okay. And then of course we returned to the Holloway's dining room and Billy and Heather drug and abduct both of Heather's parents. And with, with American Pie playing in the background. I was just about to say that. With American Pie, <laughs> I was like, okay, interesting music choice. <laughs> Juxtapose the music with something horrible. Sure, I, I get it. But I feel like we've hit so many comedic beats in this episode. Why not go more serious, especially with how chilling that look 
was from Billy that we were just talking about. Why not take this scene and really go more serious with the music choice? I'm not really sure. I mean, I'm not saying that American Pie doesn't work, but it was an interesting choice. It, I find that it actually waters it down a little bit. Oh, definitely. I have to wonder if it's because it's American Pie. Like, it has to do with this whole, like, America-USSR thing. But, like, I kind of think it would have been better or more effective, I should say, if they had, like you said, if they had maybe even started with like the diegetic music and then it shifts into Dixon and Stein's score. Because I really think they could have made this moment sing a lot more strongly, like no pun intended. Yeah. Actually, even like if they had just really ramped up with the sound design, like had the music, like the record stops or like something happens and they kick the record player and it starts repeating, you're jarred like out of the, the moment. It works. It's fine. But I, it could have, I think it could have been a little bit more effective if they'd. Yeah. And then Heather says the same words to her father that Billy said to her. And Billy himself smiles and the episode ends. And you can see their hive mind thing sort of working when Heather reaches over her shoulder to grab the, uh, the chloroform, right? The cloth from mm-hmm. him. And mm-hmm. she doesn't look. So that really gives a clue. If you were in any doubt, this is a hive mind being using these bodies, but it's all one. We're sort of using the the name Billy a little bit fast and loose at this point. I mean, the person walking around, walking and talking around is Billy because it's basically the mind flare. It's going to be hard though, because there's other bodies that are taken over by the mind flare. So sometimes you need to refer to which body and... Especially because in the in the sauna test, which is chapter four, there's definitely some of the stuff like in that sauna where it's like, who is it? Who's yeah. speaking? Yeah, we see you. You're gonna see Billy come out in there too. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's it. So, woof. Yeah, final thoughts for this one. Um, this episode is not actually as bad as I remembered it, but I still I still struggle with it. I still have a hard time with it. And it's not necessarily for the same reasons as the last two. Like, I mean, it just gets close to home. So I think in order for me to enjoy this season at all, I tend to overlook a lot of the stuff that happens here. And I find myself in the same camp as Heidi with other stuff where I just kind of have to pretend some of the stuff didn't happen and move on. This definitely has some lows in this episode, but we've definitely found moments to praise as well. Yes. And I mean, because it is... This is a jam-packed episode. Like, yeah. when I finished it for for this rewatch, I was like, a lot. This is a very, very dense episode. A lot happens here in terms of, like, that rushed feeling. It's like, I could we have spread some of this into the previous two? Like, I don't know. Like, the structure is just so odd. Well, and like you were saying earlier, did we really need that whole scene in the mall with Dustin and Steve? And there were probably other things here and there that could have been shifted around in favor of maybe the more main characters and that maybe would have fixed some things with the overall plot structure and and the flow of things but we found some things to enjoy though yeah and i mean and a big part of that is the stuff with nancy and jonathan i like how much wisdom you can hear in jonathan's caution towards her and yet you know you do you totally understand her fervor and her determination like you're still rooting for her i want her to succeed and also i think it's worth noting too that apart from the mind flayer through billy we didn't see him at all this episode and we don't see any rats outside of, the, well, I guess Mrs. Driscoll, but like we don't see the rats apart from the photos. And Billy ends up serving as the avatar for the Mind Flayer for the next the next episode. So I don't know if, I don't recall like how often we see like cutaways to him in that episode, but we'll find out. 
So yeah, all in all, a very mixed bag. This has really been kind of a struggle because I know, I know that I have been really, really hard this season. I'm trying to find as much positive stuff as I can without being disingenuous to my own feelings and my own, you know, analysis. But I think it's going to really pick up from here because I remember that happening. I remember getting to see it to episodes four and five and being like, this is so much better. So if any listeners are like, you guys are so <laughs> really ragging on the season, <laughs> it's going to get a little better. But, you know, again, I wanted to just be honest about about how these first three, these three, these first three hit. Feelings are valid. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming back for another episode. And thank you for having me again. This was this is this is a lot of fun. It's cool. I like not not being by myself this season. Yay. <laughs> it's nice. Yeah. So cool. Well, then with that said, that is going to conclude our contemplation on chapter three, the case of the missing lifeguard. If you've got comments, questions, thoughts, again, don't hate us for being so so negative. Uh, but you can join the conversation. We're on Instagram and Facebook as at Coffee and Contemplation Pod and TikTok as Coffee in Hawkins. Like, share, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and consider leaving us a review. Thanks for listening. Over and out. Hopper came home and he drove home drunk. That uh, that idiot. What did I just see? <laughs> Cats just fall from the walls in my house. <laughs> There's a ledge up there that oh, goes into the okay. kitchen so they can sit there. <laughs> my guess was going to be that you had a tree like a cat tree or tower like right off screen but wow that was amazing <laughs> they just come down they fall from the ceiling <laughs> we have so many they just fall from the ceiling <laughs> yeah oh that was perfect <laughs> could not have planned that better